Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What's up, Mets Up listeners? Back here for episode number 70 of the Mets Up podcast. Of course, I'm your co-host, Draftneck Mark. Mark Luino here with James Shiano. Jeter had no range. Talking about everything New York Mets baseball. And while we did tease last episode today, we're going to be talking about Once Upon a Time in Queens. We actually do have some Mets things to talk about here that are currently happening and are kind of relevant right now. So we figured we'll push it back another week. Like, what's that really going to do for us? It's going to be a, a rainy day kind of episode when we got nothing to talk about. Today, though, on this episode, we do have a lot, like I just said. We got a lot of new hirings for the managers and coaches, or coaches, I should say, not managers, coaches for the Mets staff. We got a hitting coach. We got a first base coach, third base coach. We got new guys all around and a lot of good things to say about them. We also got some rumors about free agency. We saw Brandon Nimmo just became a Scott Boris client. So we got a little bit of everything, nothing too particularly important. But if you are a Mets fan, these are all things that I'm sure you want to be keened in on, learn a little bit more, get some insight from us, as you always do. You guys know the drill here. Drop us a like on YouTube if you're watching us. Subscribe to the channel as well. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at MetsUp. If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, drop us a five-star rating. Drop us a review. It really does help us grow, as well as, you know, drop us a little uh, Spotify review in particular because we haven't done, you know, a lot of them yet because it's relatively new. And, uh, yeah, I think that's the perfect time to bring in James. James, how you doing, man? How's it been? It's been a week. Good. Yeah, it's been a week. We actually had a conversation off there about how long it feels like in between our episodes now because we're not doing them every three days. And it does feel long. I like how you introed this. Like, we have so much to talk about, and we're talking about the first and third base coaches <laughs> and the hitting coach. Dude, that's just the minutia we love as, like, diehard Mets fans. We love talking about things that really shouldn't be very important, but we will give you a full breakdown on Wayne Kirby and Eric Chavez and all these new guys that are going to be a part of this Mets, you know, coaching staff. And we're going to start that out with the one guy that just mentioned, Joey Cora, who's going to be the new third base coach for the New York Mets, which he is third base, right? Instead of Kirby? Yeah, he's third base. Which, I mean, if you listened to us last season, you would know our aversion to Gary DeSarcina, the Mets' former third base coach. And we've made this analogy before, but a third base coach should be like a cornerback or like an offensive lineman where you never want to know his name. If you don't know that guy's name, that means he's doing everything right. If you know your third base coach's name, something is clearly wrong. And something was wrong last year with Gary DeSarcina. So we're hoping Joey Cora with a wealth of Major League Baseball experience, can come in and maybe write the ship a little bit. Yeah, it'd be nice. I mean, he's Alex Cora's brother, in case you guys couldn't you know, draw the line between those two there. So he's a part of a baseball family, a former Major Leaguer as well, which it seems like the Mets are really kind of honing in on with these coaches around the team right now is guys who have been around the game for a while, but maybe aren't you know the necessarily like prestigious guys or the guys that have, you know, Ron Washington almost like, I would say. Um, these guys are a little bit on the younger side of the older generation. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. Cora and Kirby are both pretty old. These guys were baseball players in the 90s. But Cora is a guy who actually did at one time 
in his baseball playing career did have like some esteem. Like he was a Vanderbilt Commodore, which anyone who follows college baseball knows that they're one of the, one of the premier baseball programs. He was a first round pick, which is pretty surprising. It's different from the other guy we're going to talk about in a few minutes, Wayne Kirby. Played for 10 years in the majors, similarly to his brother, where he had this kind of like long winding career of being like an infielder here and infielder there. But Joey Cora did make an all-star team. And he actually, for a while, held the Mariners and the American League switch hitters all-time longest hit streak at 24 games. That's a specific stat. <laughs> how funny! How funny is that one? But he was in both cases it was broken within five years by an AL switch hitter who I forgot, and by Ichiro. So just a little funny one. And he actually was a part of the Mets uh, system. He coached in the minor leagues for the Mets immediately after retiring in the late 90s, and eventually as a friend of Ozzie Guillen, was brought with Ozzie to the White Sox in 2003 and was on his coaching staff during the World Series. Hmm, okay, yeah, so he's got a little bit of experience around some winning teams. And I know that he's been, what, with the Marlins and the Pirates. He's just kind of been around baseball ever since he left it as a player. Yeah, right after he, uh, right after Ozzie was fired from the White Sox and hired by the Marlins, he pulled Joey Cora with him to that Marlins job. And then after the Marlins thing flamed out with Ozzie, he went to the Pirates org in 2016. He was uh, the manager of AA Altoona for one year, and then he's been the third base coach there ever since, so for the last five seasons. Yeah, and again, like it's the third base coach. Like you said, you really shouldn't know too much about them, but I think it's nice that he's a baseball lifer. Uh, he clearly has some knowledge. There's no way that he'd be kept around all these organizations for all this time without having some sort of value to the team. And while you did say you don't want to know the guy's name, I mean, Ron Washington is probably the only third base coach that everyone around baseball knows. And that is for a good reason, because he does make players better. So I'm hoping Joey Cora can maybe have some sort of influence in helping this team actually improve, which would be nice. Definitely. And something that you've talked about a lot, especially last season, was the Mets team lacked edge and the Mets team lacked fire. Joey Cora is a guy who's known around baseball as being a little bit of a firecracker, which is much different than his younger brother, Alex, who's always been the even-keeled guy. Even-keeled. Yeah, another funny uh, story about Joey Cora. Joey Cora, a great Wikipedia. I pulled probably the two funniest things from it, so there's no use in you guys going to it, but really thankful for whoever wrote that Wikipedia media page because really helping out with this content but joey cora one time while in the minor leagues was stabbed while waiting for the team bus what twice <laughs> he was stabbed. twice in the stomach and the arm wait stabbed twice twice there was multiple assailants basically the story goes that he was exchanging words with fans outside the visitors clubhouse after a game for unknown reasons and they came back within the hour between them changing and them getting on the bus to go to either to the next game the team hotel or wherever minor league stayed in the early 90s late 80s came back with two more dudes and assaulted him literally assaulted him tried to kill him that's so crazy one guy was oh charged yeah, I mean, yeah, stab somebody I mean, they, they you found should be him. charged i don't know that's crimes crazy. in the 80s you can do anything and people with no idea that's insane. He got stabbed. Oh, I, that's that's a ton of edge. I love that. He spent six weeks on the on the DL t- DL at the time, and he came back that season. Uh, you know, that's something that is just a little chip on his shoulder. We our third base coach has been stabbed twice, yes. and he's survived, and he came back stronger. And Clint Hurdle is a guy I've talked about a lot on this <laughs> at one time. Talked about a lot in this podcast, being someone who could be Clint Hurdle ish, who was on Clint Hurdle's staff for five years. A little helpful, I think. I remember Joey Cora being involved in one of those Pirates fights from the last few years, too, right? The Garrett one? Yeah, I think I believe he was either trying to break everybody up or he was ready to go. And I'm like, I'm coming at you. I'm Joey Cora. Let's do it. Well, either way, Joey Cora was in the middle of, of said fight. So that's, that's, that's big that the Mets are—I I don't even know if it's big. It's something that the Mets have added fire now to this coaching staff. No Dave Jow sitting on the bench trying no. to stay away. Maybe, maybe Buck brought on Cora to be his muscle, you know what I mean? Because Buck's probably not fighting anymore. Not that Buck was ever much of a fighter, but— at least Cora, you know, former major leaguer. Betty's a little bit bigger than Buck, and 
he could be his guy, his right hand man in the ring. He's in good shape, and he's a guy too that had been rumored for I feel like the last few years of getting interviews to be you know the actual manager of teams too. So that's also important I think to mention as well. Yeah, he got close one time. It was the Brewers, I think, in 2010 or 2011, but that was before the Brewers' entire organizational overhaul. So. You can take that for what it's worth. But he's someone who is respected around the game and who people have tried to have around on more than one occasion. So I think that's meaningful on a coaching staff. And then that other guy yeah. that was hired, similarly, Wayne Kirby. This guy is just straight up Buckshaw Walters guy. He was on the Rangers staff from 2006 to 2010. So the Rangers actually kept him there after they let Buck go, which was interesting. And then he was the first base coach in Baltimore from 2011 to 2018. So basically after Buck's first season, Wayne Kirby was with him the entire rest of the way there. And it was funny because Buck talked in his introductory press conference about bringing in his own guys. And he said, I don't bring in buddies. I bring in people that can deliver what needs to be done for the players, which I like him saying that, but Wayne Kirby's like almost certainly one of his buddies. <laughs> and, and like, honestly, I think it's probably just like that weird, you know, coincidence in that like the guy who he does think is the most perfect fit for the job also happens to be his friend so it's like that weird you know little in between yeah it's like going like out with some of your friends and like someone talks to a girl and you go like this is a great guy this is one of the, this is one of the best guys i have like there's no one better <laughs> little, for you than this guy a little biased little biased just a little bit for sure and kirby like a little different from cora he was never this like big critically came baseball player he came from a small town in virginia he just played parts of, he was a late round draft pick 13th round i feel like i remember Played parts of eight seasons with the Indians at the time, the Dodgers. Even played a few games for the Mets in 1998. And he's been on the Padres staff for the last few seasons uh, with Jace Tingler and Ryan Flaherty, who was denied by the Mets. Another fun Wayne Kirby stat is his brother actually was a third-round pick of the NFL draft, Terry Kirby, and played 10 seasons in the NFL as a running back. That's an incredible career as an NFL player, 10 seasons. As a running back, no less. Yeah, no, that's pretty impressive. And what position did Wayne Kirby play? Do you know? He moved around corner outfield, I believe, and he played some first base at the end. And for these jobs with Baltimore and the Rangers, he was an outfield and first base coach. Okay, yeah, so that's what I was thinking too, is because like, Cora, clearly infield guy, Wayne Kirby helped a little bit with the outfield. Yeah, and I'm not saying that Kirby's like a first base coach, like he's going to co- like coach the first baseman. He's literally standing on first base. I don't want that to be misconstrued. Yeah. He's going to be more of an, out- an outfield guy. I think he did some base running too was one of his titles with the Rangers, I believe. Okay, yeah. I mean, again, first base. Yeah. You want to talk about the insignificance of a third base coach. The first base coach could be the most insignificant thing on an entire major league staff. Yeah, we're not. He holds the gloves. <laughs> yes, he holds the gloves and he has the timer for getting the pitchers and the pop times and everything. Like we're, that. Not, but, we're, not, we're not pretending these are major news pieces, but these are simply news pieces, so we're going to talk about them. Now, that being said, I do think that the hitting coach is pretty important. And it is pretty integral to a team's success at times. I don't necessarily think it can make a team worse, but I do think it can make a team better. And I think Eric Chavez, who we poached, we yanked right away from the Yankees, which that's just fun. I love saying that, that even though it's like, it's not important, but like, it's great to know that he was hired by the Yankees, what, just like a month ago, even? I think it was like early December. Yeah. Yeah, and then the Mets came around. And he said, I, "Actually, I don't want to work for you guys anymore. I'm going to the Mets." Which that doesn't happen. That we'll take our little victories right now because the little victories. That's how it starts. And soon at the end, you know, we we're getting everybody. It doesn't happen otherwise. But this is now the second time this offseason that Steve Cohen has done this because we mentioned about a month and a half ago that the Mets did this exact same thing with Dan Schoenfeld, who is now their minor league analytics coordinator, who had just picked up a similar role. I think head of player development with the Royals, like literally three weeks before the Mets offered him a job. So it seems like Steve Cohen is very concerned with getting talent into this organization from a coaching standpoint. He will stop at nothing to get whoever he thinks, and there's no etiquette at play here, which 
That's fun. I like that. We don't need etiquette. We have the most money in the league. Yeah, no, fuck that. Let's let's spend money. It's not not me or your money. Who cares? It's Steve Cohen's. He wants to use it how he wants. I'm all in if it makes the team better. And it's just funny when you take a guy like that away from the Yankees. And people were like on the internet. It was fun for a day. People acted like we basically won the World Series by taking at the time the Yankees assistant hitting coordinator and making him our head hitting coach. But it's fun. It's fun to get one over on the Yankees after their bad offseason so far. Of course, too. And it's not like Eric Chavez, while he didn't have that major role with the Yankees and he's going to be our hitting coach, he did get that upgrade. It's for good reason. Like, this guy was a very, very good player back in the day when he was playing in the early 2000s. I mean, he what played, like, what, 15 years, I think, with the A's or something like that? He was around baseball for... mostly for the A's. Shockingly, he never made an all-star team. Really? Yeah, I peaked his baseball reference before, and he never made an all-star team. He got MVP votes in five consecutive seasons and won gold gloves in each of those years as well, and he never was an all-star. Yeah, because I was going to say, he was great in Oakland. He was getting on base. He played a great third base. He was Fantastic. great defensively as well. Like He was an all-around, all-around really, really good player for those A's teams. And he's the kind of guy who I think his skill set gets lost in the time because the, he was he had his peak during like kind of the height of the steroid era from like 2000 to 2007 when you weren't really looking at guys if they weren't hitting 35, 40, 45 home runs. And Chavez was a guy who hit like 25 homers, 270, 280 average drove the runners in for like near 400 on base and he played great defense. That that's the kind of guy who's like probably even more valuable today. But I think the phrase you were looking for before about Chavez was that he was very sought after. It seems like a lot of different organizations were looking to bring Eric Chavez into the fold. And he had massive connections to both of these front office being the Mets and the Yankees because he was a special assistant under Cashman in 2015 right after he ended his career with that really weird bad year for the Yankees. And then the year after that, when Epler left for Anaheim from that same staff with Cashman, he took Chavez with him. And he was a special assistant under Epler 2016-2017. And then Epler appointed him to be the manager of the Salt Lake Bees in 2018, a team that you have some closeness to. Yeah, no, I know a couple guys that were on those teams that played under Eric Chavez. I think he was the interim manager at the time when they were there. And they had all great things to say that, you know, he's a player's coach. He he knows a lot about the game. He's very easy to talk to. He's very good at explaining or teaching you what is to be done or how to get this game, how to play it the right way. Like he's very much hands on, and he's very easy to interact with with the players. And hearing from these guys who are also a part of this organization, that was something that the Angels struggled with at the time was having coaches and guys on the staff that were relatable and understood how the game was being played in the modern day. And it seems like Eric Chavez is trying to be ahead of that curve and not only just be a player manager or be a player coach, but also make sure that he's getting the most out of his players and helping them improve so that they can get to the next level that they want to be at, which I think that's huge. That is huge. And it's also important that he played like in this modern era of baseball while still being a guy who is like esteemed and like is respected. Similarly to how a lot of these quality control coaches and a lot of these bench coaches who come through the league now and how they immediately have respect of players. Like you think about Brian Schneider with the Mets or um, Rocco Baldelli with, uh, tw- with the Twins, Craig Council. Like these guys who played in that era who were able to see the beginning of how statistics and analytics could improve the game and now how they're able to take their experience playing then and apply it now with the analytics background into coaching is incredibly important. And we've seen these guys be successful in many places. But I thought one interesting thing about Chavez was that after that 2018 season, he stepped away from any defined roles with teams. And now it seemed like he almost announced that he wanted to come back. And then a lot of teams were vying for his services. Yeah, no, he's a smart guy. I mean, even like you were talking about, you know, playing in the modern age of baseball. Like he was he was on the Oakland A's who were yeah. trailblazers for modern baseball in the early 2000s. So he understands what it has to take 
to be that kind of player. And apparently the dude, I mean, from who I got the information from, he said he truly loves the game of baseball. He loves having fun with it. Like he is there to enjoy the game and make players better. And that to me is exactly what you want out of a hitting coach. He's going to take the information that they give him and he's going to try to make these players better and he's going to have fun doing it, which like it's a little cliche to say like, oh, have some fun. Like it's about winning at the end of the day. But that's something that the Mets definitely struggled with a little bit last year was being loose and having a little bit of fun as we could, you know, see with guys like McNeil and Lindor choking each other out in the in the tunnel. But I think he's going to be a really good addition. Yes, and just the fact that he is, while he's young, He's going to command respect right away. Like similarly to how Buck Showalter's going to command respect right away, we're kind of building this like nice coaching infrastructure of a lot of former players who everyone's going to be able to look to whenever they're in a bind or in a bad spot or like slumping. Because the big thing last year with the Mets was that Quadlebaum came in as the hitting coach kind of unexpectedly after a lot of these guys had relationships with Chili Davis. And he was never really hired to ever work with the Major League staff. Like his role was player development. So he didn't really have that much prior knowledge of these guys in the Major League team. I'm sure he had some much more than the average person. I'm sure, like, based on hitting philosophy, he's going to make an impact in this organization. But he doesn't have the same acumen on the field that Eric Chavez does. And I think that is going to be important. Also, this is a funny quote, just in December when Chavez was interviewing with the Yankees, Aaron Boone afterwards said that, um, in a lot of ways, he blew me away. He's got a really good perspective of the game. He's very open-minded. I was just thinking, like, what do you have to do to blow Aaron Boone away? Like, do you have to walk and chew gum at the same time? <laughs> like, what kind of obscenities do you have to say to make Aaron Boone, like, think, oh, my God, this is the guy? Like, how, like Brett Gardner blows Aaron Boone away three times a week. Like, that was the one thing that kind of took took away the Chavez shine for me, but I will take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, no, I think I think that was more so uh, lip service and trying to just, you know, give the news a little bit of a sound bite there because I, I can't. A hitting coach blowing someone away feels kind of, kind of like almost just uh, hyperbole in, in a sense. Assistant hitting coach at the time, he would have been the Yankees' assistant to the hitting coach. They have a hitting coach, so we gave him an automatic promotion off the bat, bang, without ever seeing him in a major league dugout ever, because he was a special assistant to the general manager. He was more in a front office role, and then he was on a minor league bench. Which, take that as you will, we don't. I don't get. It's really bizarre that he kind of left the bees and the Angels organization, and hasn't done anything for three years. And it's kind of, in retrospect, kind of cool looking back because he got a nice year and a half off before COVID and he's had COVID to relax and now he's ready to get back into uh, to his craft. And he just seems, he was a hot commodity and I'm happy we have him in a leadership role. To be fair, I think part of that was uh, he's, he's a big Epler guy. Him and Billy, uh, real really? close, okay. real tight. That's like his kind of guy. Um, and apparently there's just not a lot of freedom over there in the Angels organization during that time. So it was more so of like, let me get out of here because this is a bad scenario that it's currently in. Let me go somewhere else. Let me take some time off. And it ended up being probably a good decision for me. Went from being an interim AAA manager to the hitting coach of the New York Mets. And truly, he kind of went in hyperdrive for like the hiring process because he got a promotion in a month. Like who, yeah. who who gets a job and gets promoted in a month? He got a new title, a raise. Usually with the Mets, we're used to the firing within a month, not yeah, yeah. the hiring within a month. No. <laughs> That's true. Two straight off seasons. So one of these guys is not going to make it to the season with the team. I don't know who it's going to be. Who's it going to be? Oh, God. We'll, take, we'll, we'll do a poll later. But then the one role the Mets still have to fill, which is like that transition, is the bench coach. And they've been blocked this week from a few young, sharp-minded bench coaches. Ryan Flaherty with the Padres, who Showalter was like, that was like his right-hand man, apparently, with those Orioles teams. And Andrew Bailey with the Giants, who like, 
I mean, the fact that you're going to be go from like a pitching coach to a bench coach says wonders about what Andrew Bailey's baseball mind is like. I was just about to ask that. Andrew Bailey, that is the rookie of the year reliever, right? With the A's, Andrew Bailey, yeah. who just kind of fell off a cliff. Yeah, and then did he get traded to the Red Sox and the arm was never the same, something like that? Yeah, something along those lines. Like he literally had like that one year and then that was kind of it, but he was great. And I knew, I saw him last year with the Giants as a pitching coach. I went, oh, Andrew Bailey, that's a young guy. Like he, he's like 34 or 35, I think. Makes sense we got denied him. If you're a smart organization, you want him around. Definitely. And he's actually only 37. He's a South Jersey guy. Like he apparently he grew up a Mets fan. This would have been something that would have been an important job for him. That would have been cool. And then uh, Ryan Flaherty, when you say that he was Buck Walter's right hand man when he was with the Orioles, I couldn't have picked a more perfect player for Buck Walter to love. Ryan Flaherty yeah. is just so insignificant <laughs> as a player; it's unbelievable. But as a coach, as a bench guy, I'm sure he'd be great. Oh, right, fantastic! And he has been credited with a lot of doing whatever he can to take the Padres into the future over the last few years. As much as Jace Tingler would have um, resented that notion, God. But I think it's just, it is a good thing that the Mets are looking at young, cutting-edge guys in their 30s to be stand next to Buck Walter and be on this bench. It shows that everyone's very open-minded. The things that we were concerned about with Buck are probably unfounded and that there's a good chance that we do end up having one of the most cerebral and knowledgeable and active coaching staffs in all of baseball, especially the National League East. Did you see Andy Martino's tweet from yesterday or two days ago? No. It is laugh out loud funny and it's about the bench coach thing let me pull it up for you here real quick and read it out to you because it's you know we like to clown on Andy Martino and for good reason I mean he is a clown he's just it's incredible that he gets paid money but this tweet is the perfect example of why everyone rags on Andy Martino and here it is the Mets have honed in on a bench coach I don't have the name but they'll wait to announce the entire staff at once after selecting their assistant pitching slash bullpen coach and assistant hitting coach but yeah bench coach seems set and he goes don't spend your day speculating I don't plan on it Eric Chavez is almost certainly the highest profile name on the staff so like there is a little insight there but also this dude literally says they have a guy I don't know who it is I, I don't have a name I have no clue but I'm hearing they have a guy. It's like the classic, like, well, you know, I, I know of a guy who knows of a guy. It's like he's such he's such a, a, a shaky reporter. It's unbelievable. No, my girlfriend's really real. She just goes to a different school. Yeah, Manti Teo. Yeah, she's in, she lives in Canada. I can't see her. My, my You know about my dad's immigration issues. Yeah, it's just a ridiculous tweet. Right. Andy Martino, he, he's keeping it up strong. Good to see that in 2022. Yeah. Also, just... In terms of the Andy Martino and the way this bench coach search is being portrayed now in the media, there's nothing to talk about. It's dry out there. Ken Rosenthal's written two articles about the Mets failing to hire a bench coach. Like a lot of people have been tweeting about permission being blocked. This isn't like the general manager thing being blocked. This is now like we're after the new year. Like generally, if it was normal, we'd be three weeks away from pitching pitchers and catchers. You would be a stone cold fool to allow a coach on your major league staff right now to go coach on someone else's major league staff. Like you are ramping yeah. up like theoretically, like everyone still has to be planning as if we're going to have a normal ramp up. I know we're not going to, which that's kind of sad, but you can't let a guy go at this point in the game. Like the Mets are probably going to have to hire someone who's not in the staff right now or someone who's like well below the pecking order where the team would just feel really bad about denying for a role. Yeah, because if you're the Giants, you're not trying to find a new pitching coach right now. <laughs> I couldn't even imagine the Giants trying to find a new pitching coach right now. They're in the doorstep of a World Series. You're going to let the guy walk out the door? No way. Yeah, it's absolutely nuts. And of course, you know, the media running wild with it, as they do with anything New York Mets related. Yep. And then in terms of news, I mean, there isn't too much else here. There's been some rumors and stuff. And we asked you guys to, you know, send us questions on Twitter and all our social media. We got a few. The two most popular are going to be about Brandon Nimmo switching to Scott Boris as his agent, which is huge, huge news on 
kind of free agent season coming up here for Nimmo. And then about the DH possibility, because the Mets could be after some guys on the market. Kyle Schwarber's name has been thrown around a little bit. We'll get more in depth into that, but let's talk about Nimmo and Scott Boris first, because I think that's probably the most interesting one really right now with the Mets, because that is a legitimate concern. We had been talking about how we want Nimmo to sign, you know, this team-friendly extension. Oh, it's gone. It's out the window. It's not happening. Concern is not the word. There's an unmitigated disaster for the Mets. That's Brandon Nimmo just went with Scott Boris. You guarantee that we're not getting an extension now off the bat. 100% no extension. It's not happening. You sign Scott Boris because you don't want an extension because the policy is no extensions. We test the open market. So that's out of the question. Gonzo, done deal. That being said, though, I will say that Scott Boris and the Mets seem to have a pretty good relationship now with that Max Scherzer thing. When you sign a 37, 38-year-old pitcher to the biggest contract, I feel like that's that's at least a little bit of a closer bridge than there once was with Mets and Boris. I don't want to say good relationship. I would say finding your opportunities where they are presented. Like Scott Boris is very aware of who the richest man in baseball is. And if I was Scott Boris, I would do anything I could to cozy up to, again, the richest man in all of baseball. Like there's no reason for Scott Boris not to for his own sake and his own business to do as well as possible, not to have as good of a relationship as humanly possible with the f- guy with $14 billion over here who's trying to win a World Series in the next two to four years. Like, that just makes yeah. sense. And the way that Nimmo switching to Boris, it kind of leads me to believe that maybe there was some type of a failed negotiation or something wasn't going the way he wanted it to be going. You know what I mean? Like, you switch to Scott Boris when you kind of want to become a killer. Like, you don't hire Scott Boris if you want to be an easygoing guy like Nimmo. You want to smile. You want to hang out. Like, that's not what Scott, Scott Boris' agency does. Like, you extract every single dollar of value out of your production until the end of time. So this kind of leads me to believe that there probably was some kind of, I don't want to say fracture, but probably some type of at least, like, crack in what was going on with Nimmo and the Mets to make him go to Boris at this stage. Yeah, and I think, I mean, he was with CAA too, so it's not like he was with one of the, like, a little guy either. He was with one of the three biggest agencies in baseball right now. So I, I think it's more so, I don't think it speaks more to the Nimmo-Mets relationship, but more so to Nimmo wanting the most money, and he probably felt like his agency was looking to get too much of a discount, I'm guessing, or trying not trying hard enough to get him the most money. I think that's more so what it is, and Nimmo's on the Mets too. He just saw Max Scherzer sign for $40 million. I'm sure he's like, wait, I'm really good. And I'm hearing more and more people talk about how I'm one of the best leadoff hitters in baseball, you know, around the league. I should get paid. I should get big money. I played center field great last year. Like there's no reason I shouldn't be getting the money Starling Marte just got at the absolute minimum. Definitely. When you look at Nimmo's arbitration numbers in terms of other players with similar like I don't want to say production because Nimmo has not been on the field for that kind of production, but similar rate stats. Like he only made $2.1 million his first year of ARB, and last year 4.7. This year he's projected somewhere between 5.8 and like 6.3. But that isn't aren't really the types of numbers that you would think for a guy who is as well-respected among smart baseball circles as Brandon Nimmo. And I think that he's a guy who can literally have one year where he plays even 130 games this season, probably 50 of them in center field at a reasonable I don't know, with reasonable defense to boot, and he could be a guy who signs a $100 million contract. Like, I'm not even kidding about that. Like This almost guarantees that Brandon Nemo is going to play his last year with the Mets, if he plays well. Like Nemo's yeah. either going to have a good year and leave, or have another Nemo year, and then we'll see. Yeah, and like you said, like him playing center field is huge too, because we know the center field market is always so, so hard to come by. And not that I'm sure he's pissed that he's playing the corner with the Mets. I don't think that's a problem, but he definitely knows that if he markets himself as a center fielder or teams go after him as a center fielder it's gonna be hard to beat what you can get out of Brandon Nimmo right now and I think that ship has already sailed because Brandon Nimmo's already put one good year of center field defense both numbers wise and eye test wise like out there in like 
in the world right now. It's kind of like when a quarterback has a few good games and then they immediately get that massive contract. Think about Matt Flynn. Brock Osweiler. Brock Osweiler. You, Matt Flynn, uh, Chase Daniel. Like Matt yeah. Flynn threw 400 yards in one game and signed like a $30 million contract or 40 or 50 or whatever it was. Like just because you saw him play quarterback good one time. Like Nimmo can play no center field this year and you can go into free agency next year as someone who's 30 and say, I, can, I have two good years of center field in me. So you have to pay me for two good years of center field because that's what I can do and I know you need that because almost every team in baseball needs a center fielder all the time. Yeah, so it's definitely going to make Nimmo if we are going to bring him back. Just a little bit more expensive. <laughs> no more no more cheap discounts. No more, there's no more secret about how good Brandon Nimmo is when Scott Boris signs him as a client. No, that's, uh, that's officially put his name on the map. And then in terms of some other free agency stuff here, the potential DH question came up because that's like you know always going to be talked about here at the new CBA. Whether or not there will be a DH, that's still up in the air. But there are some options that the Mets have internally that make sense. And then there are also some options that have been thrown around on the market, like Kyle Schwarber, who would also be good players, but do they fit? Nelson Cruz, too. I've heard Nelson Cruz's name way more than I ever thought possible with the Mets. And I, just, I, I don't know. I wrote a lot of notes about this because I don't really like the discourse going on with the Mets DH right now. I just think the entire conversation is completely flawed because, first of all, you mentioned it. There's literally no guarantee whatsoever that there's going to be a National League DH in the new CPA. And we're kind of at the point right now where if I were a betting man, betting was legalized in New York last week. Mark and I had a fun day of gambling. January 8th. January 8th, gambling day for all New Yorkers. We're going to celebrate it every year, so everyone be aware of that. But if I were to place a bet right now on whether there will be a DH in National League next year or not, I would probably lean no. As crazy as that might sound and how different that is from most of the things that we've seen otherwise, just because like I can't really see, obviously, who benefits more between the players and the owners from there being a National League DH. See, I think it's more so of a piece that they can both agree on and help lead them to getting more compromise because I think they both want the DH. I think players and owners want DH. So why would they not just agree to that? Because then you're giving up power in the power struggle because someone has to say first that they want the DH. We can't be like one, two, three, DH. Like, that's, that's not so how scary. it works. Like, someone, for you, these two play, people are going to, these two groups are going to have to come to the table with something. And it's not likely that there's going to be such a joyous negotiation. Like, oh, DH, throw it in. We both yeah. like it. Like, both people want it to a certain degree, but not enough to make any concessions for it. Like, the owners, I heard this argument from Eno Saris on Twitter the other day, kind of was a brain blast for me, but they probably want this more because they have so much money invested in pitchers, and there's so many few pitchers. Like, you you lose a pitcher, and, like, your season could be over if it's the wrong pitcher. We saw it with the Mets last year with Jacob deGrom. And Jacob deGrom arguably could have gotten hurt swinging a bat. Zach Gallon last year got hurt swinging a bat. We've seen Masahiro Tanaka get hurt on the base pads. You almost want those guys not on, on the base pads or at the plate as much as possible. Even more so than what the players' union could gain from there being a full-time, like a, a universal DH just because you get a couple extra jobs that aren't really that valuable. Like how much is a, D, a player who can't really play the field signed for in modern baseball? It's not that much. It's really just Nelson Cruz. And his market the last few years has been suppressed, even though he's been literally one of the best hitters in baseball. Do you feel that, though, opening up the DH to the National League and, you know, 15 more teams, it almost makes the DH a more coveted position. So wouldn't there be more value in guys that are actually good at it, though? The thing is... That is kind of also flawed logic because to be a good DH means you have to be really bad at something else. And we've seen kind of the smartest teams in baseball in the American League have more success when that DH is more of a revolving door than someone who stands there every day. Like David Ortiz is the player everybody talks about, and that was all good and well. But he, won was a Hall of Fame type of bat. Like those, Hitters like David Ortiz don't come around every couple of years or so. That's like a once every 15, 10, 20 years for a team type of deal. 
And also that kind of just like complicates the rest of your roster. Cause when you have that position locked in, now everyone else has to be locked in. We've seen the Yankees get into trouble over the last few years by John Carlos Stanton being locked into that DH spot. And we've seen teams like the Rays and the Red Sox do everything in their power to keep that open, especially the Dodgers in the um in the shortened season nationally did have a DH. It seems like there's just more to gain when that position is something that revolves, as long as you do don't have the elite bat. And Cruz and Schwarber do profile as the elite bats that could make the stable DH worth it, but just not for the Mets rosters is currently constructed yeah the way it's currently constructed it would be a little bit of a too many cooks situation there would be a lot of guys who can all do the same thing right now and that is really the main reason why i think schwarber and cruz don't make sense but like in a vacuum i guess you're saying you know starting nine you're playing your nine best players schwarber and nelson cruz are by far better options than anybody that the mets could currently put at dh clearly like last year the Rays, nelson cruz made a shit ton of sense for them even though it went against their long-standing philosophy of rotating the dh until cruz came to the Rays last year they had eight different guys in dh spot at some point during the season it was guys from yosh testugo to austin meadows who had it most of the time brandon Lau did a few times here and there they just like g-man Choi did here and there they just liked having that Yandy Diaz, of course. They liked having that DH spot open. So whenever you had the right matchup or whenever some guy had like a barking hamstring or a sore wrist, you can give the guy a day off. You don't take anything off from the rest of your team. You make sure everything still runs as it's supposed to run. We saw the Giants without a DH kind of do this really well last year where you mix and match every single day. You avoid injuries. You keep the load off of the older guys who mean more for your team at the plate and everything works really well. But the Rays just had so much depth and such good defense at so many different positions that they were able to take on a DH last year, and it was able to improve their bottom line because Cruz is that good of a hitter. And again, the Rays had like four guys in the roster who could either play shortstop or center field. Like the Mets just don't have that luxury. The Mets currently right now have three full-time DHs on their team between Robinson Cano, J.D. Davis, and Dominic Smith. I can't even imagine how bringing on a fourth would help this team play. Like there's no one who can play center field or not enough guys who can play center field and shortstop on this roster. Yeah, I think... I think it's probably going to get lost, too. Like, you're saying, like, there's not a world where they help the team. Like, they definitely make the team better. I think that's, like, without a doubt. But it causes more issues as well. I'll say that signing a guy like Cruz or Schwarber will make the Mets better on opening day, but there's no proof that it's going to make the team better on August 1st. See, I don't know. I, I really do think that bringing a guy like Kyle Schwarber would be huge for this offense. Like, that, that left-handed power bat. And I know, I know you're not saying it wouldn't be. No, yeah. I just but, think that... If you want to bring in those guys, there still needs to be a lot of a churn done. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Let's say that you do sign Schwarber and there is a DH. So opening day, your outfield is Nimmo, Marte, Canna, Schwarber's DHing, Pete's at first, Jeff McNeil's at second, or Robinson Cano's at second. Or no, Jeff McNeil's at second, Francisco Lindor's at short, and um, Eduardo Escobar's at third. So what's your opening day bench then? Your bench is Robinson Cano, can't really do anything. Your bench is J.D. Davis, who also can't really do anything. Luis Guillorme, who could play defense everywhere, but we're not really sure if he can hit enough to be in the major leagues. A backup catcher, Tomas Nito, and then who's the fifth bench guy in that situation? Uh, Yeah, who would be the fifth bench guy? I don't even know. I'm blanking on the Mets bench guys right now. Who are you looking at, the producer? No, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> thinking. I'm looking out to the side, looking out the window here in sunny Texas. Is Jamie over there? Like, Jamie, who's the Mets fifth bench guy? Yeah, who, who, what do we got over here? <laughs> you got a name for me? Pull a little uh, Mike Frances. I don't know who we're talking about. Uh, I'm pulling it up right now. It would be... Oh, it'd be Dominic Smith, of course, the guy we just mentioned. So so if you bring in Kyle Schwarber, he's a guy who can't really play defense. You now have three guys on your bench who can't play defense, a backup catcher, and the one guy who can play defense can't really hit. Yeah. I just don't see how we get through a season without a lot of middle infield depth in the upper minors to where that roster spot is best used in that way. Like, maybe if we didn't sign Mark Hanna, 
like it would have made a little bit more sense, or if Jeff McNeil gets traded. But we can't in that situation. Also, you really can't afford to lose Jeff McNeil because he's another one of your only versatile players on the whole roster. Like it's not that these guys wouldn't obviously make the Mets lineup better. The Mets definitely need a lefty bat, and the Mets could definitely use one more hitter to send them from like a good offense to a great offense. But it seems like it'll just put the rest of this roster in a box that I don't really think it would benefit them to be in in the long term. By long term, I mean like the entire season, not like years, you know? Yeah, and that does kind of go against what we've seen recently with like the guys the Mets have been going after where, you know, Eduardo Escobar can play three infield positions. Starling Marte plays all the outfield positions. Mark Canna can play all the outfield positions in a little first base too. Like they have the versatility. Kyle Schwarber is a good player. Nelson Cruz is a good player. Great player. like you said would definitely help on paper, but we also know that you need to be able to make fill-ins and have different guys step in, and I I think you're definitely right in that, that it would be just a little too many cooks in the kitchen, and uh, we could go and make the team better through other avenues rather than filling in our DH 100%. Yeah, and it's not even about filling in other avenues with the money you'd save. Like, money, we're not even talking about money anymore, but there's just... Don't care, yeah. you've, You've 26 roster spots here, and you have to make sure those are maximized in a way that helps this team win on a daily basis. Again, like there are days that Kyle Schwarber and Nelson Cruz will be able to win you a game because they'll hit two home runs or they'll drive in five runs to get a shit ton of hits. But like, it's ironic, but the big thing that's kind of locking the Mets into this right now, besides those three guys who don't even have a clear defined role or any way to help this team is the fact that they have an elite hitting first baseman. A lot of the times the teams like the Dodgers, the Giants, the Rays, last year, the Red Sox, they were kind of able to use that first base position as half of a DH and be able to rotate their guys who couldn't play the field in there. Like, if first base was open, Cano could play there a little bit. JD could play there a little bit. Either Cruz or Schwarber could play there a little bit. Because for some, they were both playing that last year after they were traded to those two very smart teams who were run by very similar types of people. And I'm not saying at, like, at all in any way, shape, or mind that Pete Alonso shouldn't be on this team. Pete Alonso literally, <laughs> he's one of the best hitters in baseball. I'm just saying, like, when you have a locked-in first baseman, it gives you less flexibility to sign these one-dimensional types of players. Like, the Mets need athleticism. The Mets need defense more than they need power right now. And that doesn't play as well in podcasts or on Twitter or in videos or in articles, but it just makes more sense for this team to be as good as it can be to get more athletes who can do more things rather than a guy who could just sit in the bench and hit home runs. Hey, listen, I mean, what, what did we have in our description of our podcast? We're going to give you, like, very sane takes. We're going to be calm. We're going to be yeah. collected. We're going we're gonna to give you, you know... The exciting thing is to say, let's sign Kyle Schwarber and Nelson Cruz. But the right move tells us there's other things we can do before that. We could talk for 15 minutes about their career accolades and how many home runs they've hit and their their incredible plate discipline, the way they smash the ball, how much fun it's see. Hey, see Kyle Schwarber hit home runs into the Pepsi, the Coke corner now. And we do lose like 15 home runs a year hit against us from Kyle Schwarber. So, you know. It wouldn't be a problem to just sign Kyle Schwarber and just not play him. Just put him, <laughs> on, put him in AAA. <laughs> that would be a move. So I could give Kyle Schwarber $30 million not to play against the Mets, sure. And this conversation changes if the Mets find a way to get rid of two of the the uh, unforgivables right now and yep. not saying that those guys can't be helpful in some way but there's just nowhere that i can see that cano davis or smith playing the field and hitting well on a regular basis and ironically cano was one who could do it the most i was just about to say cano is probably the guy that we're reluctant to move the most just because there's a world where he can play second base at a completely fine level again and also hit where jd davis is never going to be able to play the field and dom smith is only a first baseman and he hasn't hit so like those two guys are really the thing that are clogging up this roster right now and those two guys are the ones that more easily be traded because they don't make any money like you can probably trade smith and jd for 
like fine minor league players with like some potential or maybe even like a 17 year old with a massive amount of potential and it probably in a backwards way helps this major league team out more because you suddenly get flexibility i was just about to say do you think the mets should move dom and jd just to free up some flexibility just to have the opportunity to bring in a different kind of player because like i mean we have to keep harping on it but like they just don't really make sense right now unless there is the dh and then you're going to platoon those guys but even then if you're going to do that why would you not just go get kyle schwarber and get rid of these guys and improve somewhere else exactly especially because kyle schwarber can probably play the outfield better than any of those three guys i just mentioned like truly so and then you can kind of turn mark canna into uh but then yeah then you just gave mark canna 13 million dollars to not play every day which is a little bit obscure but like i do think that if i if this was my team if i was running it i would be running to at least get one of these guys, if not both of them, off my roster for the best minor league pieces I could get. And then you pivot that to sign guys who can play multiple positions and give you multiple things. Like, you could sign Brad Miller for free. And Brad Miller is a lefty with power who can play first and second to a degree. Like Donovan Solano, he has decent power. He can play second base some days for you in third base and do something that's okay. Like, even to bring a guy like Jonathan VR back on this roster and to play multiple positions and give you something else you don't have. It's just... I'm craving with this Mets roster right now this idea of flexibility that you see the best teams in baseball have. Some of the best, and I know that Ben Zausmer believes this too because people internally at the Dodgers are the first ones who were like, we need everyone on our bench to play everywhere. Like You have to play shortstop, center field, third base, second base if you want to have a bench spot here. And there are guys out there who can still do that. One of them who comes to mind is Trevor's story. You're giving up a pick to do that, and that's probably not going to happen. But I think if you were to make a splash as the Mets, it shouldn't be an obvious DH. It should be a guy who does more things. Like, if Trevor Story wants to be Marcus Semien, like, that makes more sense to me than Schwarber, besides for losing the draft pick. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest narrative to take out of this. Is just, it's just, it's, it's, cl- it's crowded for that position. And currently, how the roster stands, it makes it a little bit tougher. But this is also stuff that's not going to happen for a couple months because we don't have any baseball. And it's the other reason why I even feel stupid about, like, diving that much into, like, free agency discussions. Because I don't even know when we're going to – a free agent's going to be legal to sign. No clue. I think they're meeting today, right? Or tomorrow. Thursday. So today when you guys are listening, probably. Yeah. And uh, there's still so much left before we actually get any sort of baseball coming back here. Uh, I guess to wrap up this episode, since – pretty much it to talk about we had a couple questions come in right from uh viewers yeah, yeah a couple i mean we just like we got a few here and there and we both basically answered them in those two segments but our guy nick Kowal, who's like one of the most loyal messed up listeners out there shout out nick he responds to everything he's a homie he asked us two funny questions along with that dh1 he asked what were our favorite musical artists so mark who, who's your who's some of your favorite musical artists um i mean all time to be boring and annoying i know you're gonna have some cool hip takes with guys that you like but eminem's a classic that's like my favorite rapper of all time uh, like rock bands. I love Linkin Park. They were great. That was like great for me in the 2000s. I know we make fun of Ernie for it. I won't put it on at a party now because that's just not the vibe at all. But I do love Linkin Park. I like the Beatles too. Let's be boring and pick some really cliche bands, but they're just classic. I love them. Um, right now, guys that I really like. Ooh, that's tough. Uh, I really like MGK's new pop punk album that I did like a couple years ago. That yeah. to me was awesome. I think it's underrated. That's one of the things I'm listening to a lot right now. And Oliver Tree. I like him a lot too. Yeah, Oliver Tree's a homie. I love Oliver Tree. Living with you kind of make me like Oliver Tree more. I just liked him like a little bit. And then I started listening to him like, oh, this guy's a lot of fun. I've always loved Kanye. Whatever you think Kanye is as yeah. a person, I will always listen to his music. It was really good. And some other like weirdo bands that I kind of like. I love a band called Jungle. If anybody likes happy music, they're super happy. Sing a lot. Uh, Toro Wimoy, he's a homie. Plays great music. It's fucking awesome. 
again, just to be like stupid and annoying. I like the talking heads. Talking heads are funny. They're fun. Yeah. Asked us one more question. You talked about Ernie before in Lincoln Park. He asked us if this Ernie Jonathan VR thing is just a bit or if he really actually loves him. No, Nick, this is not a bit. Our friend Ernie, subtape underscore, underscore subtape on Twitter? Subtape yeah, underscore. underscore. Subtape underscore. Subtape underscore, yeah. Subtape underscore. He loves Jonathan VR. He's been his favorite player for his entire life. He loves him to bits and pieces. He wants nothing more than to watch Jonathan VR play. He was he loved him so much he bought a customized Jonathan VR Mets jersey. And, that, and any of the sorrow he shows is just for content for us. But he really yeah, does yeah. love the guy. He is, he's doing the bit. He is the one trying to be like hard to get. This is so funny. La la la. No, but he loves he customized Jonathan VR Mets jersey. You don't do that unless you're committed. I've seen one Jonathan VR Mets jersey in my life, and it's been worn by Ernie. At subtape underscore. Make sure you guys tweet him. Let him know that we talked about him in this episode. I know he'll really appreciate it. And ask him for pictures of the Jonathan VR jersey because I know he still has it because of how much he loves him. Yeah, of course. He's, he, I'm surprised it's not framed in his room. It probably is. We should get it signed for him and get it, like Shadow We Fox. should. <laughs> that would be amazing. That would be yeah. so great. And then you had that, like, just a little fun tidbit Tim Britton article where he uh, posed a question that is just kind of laugh out loud funny. Yeah, we give Tim Britton a lot of props on this uh, podcast. He's in the big three of Mets Beat Riders that we trust with Disha Thosar and Anthony DeComo. Is there a fourth one that we had there a little bit or no? I don't think we've really acquired a fourth yet. I think there might have been, but I think we'll keep maybe we'll keep that off for now. It's definitely not Healy or Barron or, no. or Eddie Martino. No, no, no. <laughs> so if it was anyone else that maybe we're just forgetting about, then we or, um, I apologize. But he posted a nice long survey yesterday about how Mets fans are feeling going into this offseason because it's a lockout for everybody out there making baseball content. We need some shit to talk about. And he posed one question that about the 2021 season that I just found the multiple choice options to be really hysterical. And it was, how would you describe your level of disappointment you felt about the 2021 Mets? And the four options were, it was the most disappointing season in Mets history, which I hope no one picked that because it wasn't the most disappointing season in Mets history. Be crazy. It was as disappointing a recent season that the Mets have had. I picked that one. I think that was possible because it was as disappointing as a recent season because the last, last, what, seven years have been disappointing in their own ways. But this one was particularly disappointing for unique ways. And this one describes Mets fans. It was sad, it's sad to read. It's going to be sad to say. And... It's, it was no more disappointing than a usual season. <laughs> Which is so crazy that a usual season is disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> than a usual season. This was no more disappointing than a usual season. A usual season. This is the first time in the history of Major League Baseball that a team who was, I think it was like five games in first place at the at, at June 1st was five games out of the first place by like September 1st, something stupid like that. As disappointing as usual season. That one is probably going to end up winning because it kind of makes sense. That one's hilarious. That's the best option, I think. That's the funniest option. And as Mets fans, we know it all too well. And uh, Good hey, episode. Yeah, good episode. A little bit shorter, but we still, we're still right around that 45, 50-minute mark because that's how we always do it. Thank you guys for listening to Mets Up, episode number 70. Uh, listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Drop us a five-star rating. We're looking for those still. And drop us some reviews. Drop us some questions in the reviews, too. We'll shout you out at the end of the next episode if you have any for us. Make sure you watch Once Upon a Time in Queens. Uh, it might be the next episode if there's no new news. If there might is... Be. Uh, it'll be the one after that. Who knows? It's just kind of a rainy day. We're, we're taking a rain check on that right now, but definitely go watch that so we can talk about it. You guys can get involved as well. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at Messed Up. YouTube channel, Messed Up Podcast. We're going to have the video up there as well. If you guys want to see a video version of it, follow James on Twitter, at Junior Had No Range. Follow me, at Nick Mark with a C. And that's where we're going to wrap up episode number 70, guys. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. And we'll see you next time. Peace out, guys. Thanks for listening.